Welcome, folks, to another edition of Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. And, Jonesy, I'm not going to even waste any time off the top here, even plugging where you can get the podcast and whatnot. We'll do that later because we need to jump right into our first guest because I have a feeling that we might need some time. This guy has always been a guy that likes to talk, who gives thoughtful answers, who's a great storyteller. We haven't had a chance to speak with him in quite some time, and he had only one season, one season as a member of the Raptors, but, man, were there some memories from that season, both on and off the court, both with him and with the team. Pleased to bring on to Smith & Jones, former Raptors point guard Mike James. Hey, Mike, it's, it's great to hear from you, great to catch up with you. And, and the first thing I wanted to ask you, as we're basically a week removed from the NBA draft, if you go back to your time and, and, and go back to draft night, ultimately going undrafted and then having to carve your way into the league. And, you know, your path and your career arc, in a sense, in many ways, I don't know if Raptor fans, especially younger Raptor fans, would, would maybe know this or appreciate this. It, to me, at least, is very similar to that of Fred Van Vliet going undrafted. Bet on yourself, find a way. And even though Freddie didn't necessarily have to go overseas like you did, having to find a way to carve out a niche. And then, heck, your careers, or, or at least your timelines, not careers, but your timelines, even intersected briefly as you spent some time in Rockford, Illinois, where Freddie is from. Yeah. You know, uh, I think that the difference is, your, you know, social media changes uh, the dynamic of how you're able to market yourself in this in this time and era and where you know we were still we're we're from the um we was the first generation uh coming out of flip phones and so you know we wasn't really known like that it's just something interesting you know um when i played in summer league I was averaging like 35 in summer league, but there it wasn't showcased the way summer league basketball is showcased now. Where if a kid dominates a summer league, uh, uh, summer league now, you know he's going to get the publicity and the hype to add along with what he's doing on the court as well. And so, I think Fred uh, came in at a perfect time where guys like myself that are uh, undrafted guys that, you know, turned out to be, you know, sometimes the uh, front offices don't know all the talents that's out there. And some of the um, talents uh, um, slipped through the um, cracks. And Fred is one of those guys that he had to claw and fight, and he made his way, and he's making a name for himself. And I'm just it, – it's multiple guys, you know, guys that the league don't know about, but it's just how hard you continue to keep working – and how hard, how much do you, how bad do you want it in spite of nobody believing you but yourself? So, Mike, I, I want to get to your time with the Raptors, albeit it was just, it was brief. It was one season. We'll talk some Raptor memories in a second. But what was the difference for you after going undrafted and then playing in the U.S. and playing overseas and then back in the U.S. and then finally getting that deal with Miami at that start of the 2001 season. Like we always, we often talk about, you know, agents got to do their work, but there's a coach, there's a scout, there's somebody that's like your rabbi, somebody that, that took care of you or saw something in you that gave you that chance or that opened that door for you. Who was it or how was it that it all unfolded? Oh, uh, that year I, I got, I was the last cut on uh, Miami's uh, roster um, going into the season. And, 
in my head, I said, okay, I, I was like, okay, um, I, this will be my fourth year playing in Europe. So I'm going to make some money this year. You know, I'm going to play for a EuroLeague team. So I was on my way ready to go back to Houston, um, to Europe and start negotiating contracts in Europe. And Chet Cameron, he was the um, he was the head scout for the Miami Heat. And he just told me, go to the CBA, Mike. Out of sight, out of mind. And uh, I said, okay. So I decided to go to the CBA. And I it, the interesting thing, like the first five games that I played in the CBA, I probably shot the ball like 25 for 150. You know, I was shooting five for 25 in games, four for 30. And I couldn't make a layup. I couldn't hit a shot. And I can remember calling my uh, my wife. Um, one day on the phone and just telling her, like, I, I, I'm done with this game. Like, I can't watch this. I refuse to sit here and think and put as much work as I'm putting in and then come out into the game, and this is what I'm producing out here. I said, I'm done. I said, I can't even play. I think I'm an NBA basketball player, and here I am, can't even play well in the CBA. And mm-hmm. so after I had that little moment, you know, crying in the airport and all that stuff and thinking that my career is over, the next two weeks in the CBA, I was averaging like 35 points, 12 assists, 12 rebounds, seven steals. Like I was playing, I was like player of the week the next two weeks in the CBA. And San Antonio signed me to a 10 day. And I called one of my um, people, you know, that, and I was so excited that I'm finally out of the CBA. And I called one of my people in Miami and was like, yo, San Antonio is about to bring me in on a 10-day. I'm, I'm so happy. They said, excuse me? We'll call you right back. Like, And then uh, Randy Fun calls me. Randy Fun calls me, you know, 10 minutes later, and he's like, Mike, we'll guarantee you for the whole year if you come back. And I was thinking to myself, 10-day contract, guaranteed for the whole year. I said, you know what? My NBA career is going to start in um, Miami. But the interesting thing is who would have known who who knows who I would have been and what kind of career if I would have had if Greg Popovich would have got an opportunity if I'd have been able to have been coached under a coach like him, especially when I was young and really just getting into it and was just like a hungry maniac. It's a great point. It's a great point. But you stayed hungry. You right, you, you once you were there, you were always hungry, but I guess you got even hungrier now that you'd had a taste. So what was that experience like then, as you just using your own words, a guy that just a couple of months earlier is saying, I'm an NBA player, but yet I can't even barely seem to cut it at the CBA, and now you finally are an NBA player, and then you have this extensive career, but yet you never really seem to be able to plant roots or something. So how did that maybe motivate you to kind of keep that hunger and keep that drive? Because I was always better than what everyone said I was, you know. It, it, like I was, I was always one of those guys. You don't know what you have until I'm gone. You'll never really, because I don't. I never done anything great. I wasn't the best shooter. I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the most athletic. But I was a drag, I was a jack of all trades. Like I didn't do nothing great, but I did everything good. So sometimes good don't really get you noticed unless you are special in a certain craft. Unless you're Speedy Gonzalez, or you jump, you have a 50-inch vertical, and you jump in like Jay Moran, or you have a handle like Kyrie Irving, or so you have to be. A, and so I was never one of those guys. And so, you know, um, front o- I, I gained the respect of my peers, but front offices, you know, they always overlooked me. 
And I've always was a, a third guard, and I had to prove myself. Every starting job I ever had, I took from someone. I never went into a. I never went into a team. I never went to a team. And when they put the preseason, when they put the roster up, and they put where they're going to um, put the players, I, I never was their first. I was never their starter. I was never their second string uh, guard. I was always their third and fourth option. And then I worked my way to the second unit first. Um, into the first unit. Before I get to Toronto, I've, I've referenced this a couple of times. I obviously want to get to some, some Raptor memories here. But that championship season with the Pistons, how did the role evolve into that sort of tandem that you had, the Pitbulls with Lin- – like I know you were tagged, if I'm not mistaken, by Rasheed Wallace, but you and Lindsey Hunter, those Pitbulls coming off the bench, and how did that role evolve for you where you did kind of step into the spotlight – maybe more than ever before, beyond being just a fourth guard or a forgotten guy, being an actual important piece to that championship team? I mean, it was part of my maturity. This was my uh, third year in the NBA. And so I was starting to um, mature. I got dra- I got traded midway during the um, season. Uh, I think it was after All-Star break. And we was playing, I can't remember where we was playing, but I can remember my agent telling me, Mike, I'm 99% sure that you're not going to get traded. And I was like, okay, like I'll deal with that. And then about, we had shoot around and about 12 o'clock, 1230, I got a knock at my door and it was Danny Ainge. I said, ooh, I said 99% sure, huh? And he said, hey, we trading you to, um, we're trading you to Detroit. We would think that this would be good for you. And when I got there, you know, when when you're amongst guys that don't cheat the game and they're genuine people, people, energy, you know, words, people can lie with words. You know, you can really, you can tell me you love me, but in your heart, in, deep down inside, you're really not feeling me. You really don't like me. You can congratulate me and tell me you're happy for me, but really inside, you, you you're really boiling because I'm I'm having a um I'm having a moment of success or whatever the case is, but energy will never lie, and the one thing that all of us were we we had this certain energy amongst all of us that we really liked each other. When the kids, I mean, two three the kids they they would have their children birthday parties, two three four years old, but the whole team would show up. You know, it wouldn't be. Like, it's a four-year-old's birthday party, but you got the starters, you got the bench, you got everybody hanging out at the uh, at the party. When we was on the road, Rip Hamilton used to just, well, before he got off the bus, he wouldn't whisper to two guys, yo, we about to meet downstairs in 15 minutes, yo, we about to meet downstairs. He would just yell, once, he, once he's about to get off the bus, he would say, yo, we meeting downstairs in 30 minutes. Whoever coming, let's go. So it was always like that. It wasn't. It wasn't clicks. We was one click. Like, we was the gang. You know, it wasn't just me and my homie and me and my boy. Like, it was a 14-unit gang when we stepped on the court. Like, everybody had each other's back. I love hearing stuff like that, Mike, because then it it makes me think of, and I, I I can segue now here a little bit into the Toronto days, not that it wasn't tight, I mean, you can tell me if it was or wasn't. I, I, I've got memories of that. I was working the broadcast back then and traveling with the team still and everything else, and, and I remember seeing the relationships. But what you're describing there, I've got to assume was at least a little bit different with a Toronto team that was 
now in a post-Vince Carter era, you've got the two picks as part of that Vince trade with, with then New Jersey coming into the league and Joey Graham and Charlie Villanueva. you got a dude coming from overseas and Jose Calderon. You, you've got you know very young players still in, in Morris Peterson and, and, and Chris Bosh. It's a young, relatively young team with a couple of vets sprinkled in. I've got to assume that's got to be a different dynamic than a veteran-laden championship team in the experience that you just recently had then in Detroit. I mean, when, you, when you're on the championship team, you're willing to sacrifice, like, your values and what you um, – the good things that you may bring to the team just so whatever you – so you can fit a role that's going to benefit the team and not just you as an individual. But now when you're a bottom feeder and you're clawing, well, you need talent. You can't win without talent. And so guys got to step up in areas where they probably have never been asked to step up in those areas before. And the thing was, you know, everyone, we was a great talent, but we was young. And because of our immaturity, we didn't start. But the thing is, what's interesting was that year we started off slow. We was one of the better teams after all-star break, you know, the second half of the season but we done dug such mm-hmm. a deep hole that, you know, every win is just trying to get you back to 500 instead of, you know, jockeying for playoff position. We are just trying to make our record respectable at this moment because now we're competing different than in the, at the end of the season than when we, how we was competing in the beginning of the season. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. You look at that team on, on paper – and you would think the record would be better, but it speaks to what you're saying. You start off slow, and maybe, maybe Mike, it was, as I was saying, it's a new era. It's the first full season without Vince. And then midway through, you've also got off the, uh, off the court, away from you guys, change in the front office. There's, there was a lot of stuff going on, right, in this sort of new era for the Raptors. And did that stuff, do you think, impact or filter onto the court or the, the play of the players themselves? I mean, you know – you don't really you you got to have an environment there are certain coaches wherever they've been they're able to win because they change the environment and i think that though that's one thing that you always have to understand is that there has to be a culture that's um there has to be a culture shift and we didn't have that that year <clears throat> we didn't have a culture we didn't have a coach giving us a, um a character or, uh, you know, like naming us, like we're a defensive team. We're a high-energy, fast-break team. This is what we are specializing in, and we're going to stay locked in on this. And every time you play against us, this is what you're going to see. No, we, you didn't know what we was going to get. You didn't know what you was going to get from us and who was going to have the good games. And, you know, it was such an inconsistency uh, across the board that started from the coaching all the way trickled down to the players. And, you know, you can't win when there's nothing solid and there's nothing um, consistent. And I think that's where the, I think that's where Toronto got better after I left is they started building a better uh, coaching foundation and they started building a, a, a stronger culture. And now the culture changed and they started believing in working like a winning team and presenting and now putting like pieces to the puzzle that want to win. So if you just if you're not if you don't have a winning if you don't have winning owners and you don't have owners that is believing with the um with the coaching staff 
and everybody's on different pages, it's just going to be hard, you know, to build any type of momentum. Mike, for you personally, it was a career year in terms of the, your point production, your role, your minutes, assists, everything. I mean, a career year overall. But yet, as we've been discussing here, for whatever reason, it was move on. Was that bittersweet in the sense that you're coming off such a high but yet still not able to stick with Toronto and having to go elsewhere? Or did you not necessarily mind going elsewhere because you were able to, I hope and assume, I'm not getting into your personal business here, but cash in a little bit on a new opportunity in leaving the Raptors? No, it, it was, you know, um, one, I remember when I was in Houston the year before, uh, after this, after the playoff uh, run we had, we lost to Dallas that year in uh, seven. I remember being in uh, Tracy McGrady's uh, house, and for some reason, something clicked inside my head during that playoff series, and I was just like, OMG. These guards really can't guard me. Like I'm, I'm pretty good. Like, and so at that point, I remember telling T Mac, like, um, the All Star game going to be in Houston next year. Y'all got all the Chinese votes. You got all the votes. I'm not trying to be Batman or Robin, but I said, help me become. An, I said, help me become an All Star. I said, every guard is under assignment next year. I said, I promise you, what I'm gonna do to every guard next year. I said, you ain't got to worry about your position. I said, we got the best three guard in the NBA. We got the best center in the NBA. And I said, we about to have one of the best point guards in the NBA. So what I did in Toronto, I already had that mindset that this is who I am. And so I – but the funny thing is T-Mac laughed at me. He didn't take me serious. And I was looking at him like, what's so funny? Like, I didn't think nothing was funny. But I was so serious when I said it to him. But – yeah, the thing is, is that you know you um you come you come to Toronto and you try to build you try to build winning ways. You have this season, but then you notice you know one of my biggest rants you know one of like, to this day people still watch it is Mike James upset with, in, in an interview where I shot like five for twenty five in the game but I still had like 13 assists. and But now everyone is berating me and telling me why I'm not a point guard and how I'm not a point guard mm-hmm. and how I'm not that, how I'm not the player that I think I am and I'm all these things. And the thing that was boggling me was like, wow, I've been averaging almost 30 for the month, but I've also been averaging 14 assists a game. And I'm like, how can I not be a point guard? And so I remember at the end of the season, Sam Mitchell came up to me and basically said, we want Jose Calderon, you know, starting at the point guard position and maybe you coming off the bench. And so it was almost like, how dare you? You know, how dare you even like, how dare you talk? Like, this is what you're going to present to me. And so it was never, man, I love Toronto. It was never about leaving Toronto. But my problem was, you know, I just, I wanted, I wanted to be, I wanted to be appreciated in a lion's den. You know, and and so I have to understand that it's hard it's hard to be appreciated in a lion's den. And so I didn't get it but it was never about just leaving or just chasing money. It was never about the bread. It was always about the place where they're gonna give me a chance and they're gonna believe that I am as good as I I'm showing and I say I am. 
You know, Mike, uh, Jonesy is now joining the conversation, so we're going to bring Paul in here in a second as well. But it, it, I, I think about that year as well, and I think about everything you just said. And, and listen, I've, I've never been a professional athlete, never will be. Man, I'm knocking on the door of 50 now. That ship is long, long since sailed, if it was even ever going to be on the water. <laughs> so, but, but what I've seen over the years and what I've seen over the course of my career, and even just as a fan of other sports, you can't be an athlete without confidence. And I think sometimes people, whether it be media, whether it be fans, whether it be fellow athletes, can often blur or mistaken confidence with cockiness or confidence with arrogance. And yeah, sometimes those three do intersect, intersect, but it's not always necessarily the case. And when I think about you, I think of a confident dude, but I think of an approachable guy. And I'm going to make another transition segue here. I think about one of the most confident, but potentially also cocky and arrogant in a good way players arguably of all time in the late Kobe Bryant I can't ask about your one season in Toronto without asking your perspective of sorry sorry dude to bring it up but the 81 point game you 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 know what um when you talk when you when you talk about confidence uh, I remember when I was in Houston again, that was one of the reasons why Jeff traded me because I asked him, because I used to be curious because he used to always be real quick with, and short with me with answers. And one day I was just like, Coach, what do you think about me? Like, who am I to you? And he said, oh, you're an arrogant, cocky SOB. And I said, really? I said, is that? And it's not that. And, and it's funny because in Houston, the uh, – the um the the tunnel the tunnel all the players they um got to park at the top of the tunnel and walk down you know into the um entrance um through the um through the hall and going going through the um tunnel where when I was in Houston the security used to let me park my car right at the beginning of the tunnel and it's not that I was anything special. It's not that I thought that I was anything great, but it was always how I treated people. I used to give him, I used to give him tips when he bring my cars. I used to give him sneakers after the game. So, you know, in return, he used to let me park my car in the valet section. So T-Mac and Yao and Coach Van Gundy would be walking from the top of the tunnel and I'll beat past him like beep, beep and drive all the way to, like, the front little area. They all look like, how the hell can I, how, I'm driving, how is this dude parking right here? Who the hell do he think he is? So it was always, you know, so, and it's not that I was arrogant. I just took advantage of the relationships that I developed and I built. And people used to allow me to have access, so it made me look arrogant. It made me look that way because of what other people was doing for me. But it just, it, it was all based off of how I made them feel. Nothing I was doing wrong. And so the, the funny thing is everyone else looked at it as cocky and arrogant, but the people that was doing it for me was just being appreciative and just loving the relationship that I built with them, and they didn't mind doing it for me. And so, um. so even the time, um, the 81 game, you know, I can remember the first half, I can remember the first half. I had a really good first half. And I come into the halftime, and all I'm thinking to myself is, all right, Mike, you killing right now. But let's get Chris involved. Let's get Mo going. Let's get Jalen going. Like, let's get them – like, I ain't going to just depend on me to win this game. 
I'm going to need my guys with me. So let me start feeding them more. So I came out. I lost my momentum. I lost my intensity. I'm not saying that I could have stopped Kobe from the 81. That was his night. But what I could have done, I could have continued to keep my intensity going and my high level of play going where I could have counted maybe some of that. And because we didn't lose by a lot of points, it was still a close game until like the last three minutes of the game when our team started yelling Kobe, Kobe, MVP. Kobe. Our team was yelling that damn thing. But anyway, we – um. I, you know, I, I come out, so I'm passing the ball to everybody, and everyone's missing. Chris missing, Jalen missing, Mo missing. Kobe come down the other end and score. So it was like the momentum he had in the first half, he kept up in the second half. So now I'm like, okay, dang. So now he's killing. Now he's on fire. But the game is still close. And I can remember one of the huddles, the crowd was going crazy. Kobe got like maybe 65 points, 70 points at this time. And the crowd is going crazy. And I said, and I, and I said to him, um, and, 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 I, and I looked at the crowd. I wanted to, like, say, like, a victory speech. Like, a, come on, like a motivation speech. Like, come on, guys, this game is still close. So what What we doing? Like, so what What he's doing? Let's just lock in these last minutes and let's get a move. Let's build a momentum and let's, you know, get some stops and let's get some stops and some scores. But right before I was going to say something, you know, it's a timeout. So the crowd is going crazy. He just scored like maybe 10 points in a row or something. And I look at Sam Mitchell. He got his hands over his head, shaking his head. And he don't know what to say to us right now. So I'm like, okay. I look at my team. I see about four or five guys like looking into the bench, looking into the crowd. But you can see them like, like their body is jumping with the Kobe, Kobe, Kobe. Like they tapping, they, they like tapping their leg with their hand, like with the rhythm of it. And I look at, and I look down at the other end, and I look at my other teammates, and they just like, and like everyone is screaming Kobe. And I'm sitting there on the bench, and I'm like, am I the only effort in this gym mad right now? Like. I'm, I'm seriously was like, are you shitting me? I just seriously just put my hands. I threw my hands up. I didn't say nothing. I just sat there and just, I just listened to the Kobe. And I was so mad at my team. I was mad at Chris. I was mad at Jalen. I was mad at everybody that I couldn't believe I was part of this history. I can't believe y'all got me a part of this damn history. I went on Roman's burning the next day and cussed out everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That that I'll tell you what, man. I remember you going on that show. I remember the next day, and and man, I got a lot of memories from that night. I got a lot of memories from that night, but I got a lot of memories from that season and from 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 twenty years, man. And and again, um, we've been catching up with guys over the course of the season, and I'm glad we got a chance to do so with you. Um, maybe you can just kind of fill the f- fans in on on what you've been doing, and 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 kind of uh, you know in retirement. Um, I'm sure life hasn't necessarily slowed down, but it's a, it's a lot different and, and you're finding ways to kind of give back to the community as you have for so long. Oh yeah, of course. You know, um, uh, I have a, uh, a cannabis farm, um, you know, about to open up a, uh, consumption lounge and dispensary, uh, been in a bit, been in the business for a few years now, but it's really starting to. It's really starting to. We're really starting to see the returns from it. Um, 
you know, I, I love I love giving. Um, I um, I help a lady, hoodiesforhealing.com. You know, she's been feeding the homeless every Sunday for like the last four years consistently. And I've just, you know, joined, I just tagged with her and just really been supporting what she's been doing for such a, um, her cause and her purpose for such a long time. And just really just trying to be a blessing, you know, wherever I can be used and utilized, really trying to stay locked in on who God is calling me to be and being the best version. It's not always easy, but the process is a beautiful process, especially when you're starting to see the results from it. Hey, Mike, I love catching up with you, man. And uh, um, Jonesy did jump in here at the last second, so I know he wants to say hi to you, but we're, we'll, we'll end it there officially. But thanks, man, for taking the time, and, and, and I hope to get a chance to chat with you again real soon, man. Oh, for sure. Look forward. Jonesy, how you doing? My boy. I'm good. I'm good, Mike. And, and, and I was listening to you and Eric, and uh, my, my phone was – technology was not, not kind to me. But I do remember, and I don't know if Eric got into this story – I do remember uh, when you talk about the way you treat people and and how things, you know, your your mind works in that sense. I don't know if you remember a particular Friday night in New York City. Um, Eric Smith was do Hollywood. He was doing NBA TV in Secaucus. And I came downstairs and I was going out to eat and I saw Mike James and the Amityville crew hanging out in the front of the hotel. And you said to me, Jonesy, what you doing? I said, I'm going to get some food, come back to the room, do some notes. We got New Jersey tomorrow, Jason Kidd. And you said, why don't you roll with us? Do you remember the night, Mike? <laughs> right, right. So we went out. It was cold. It was the coldest yeah, day in New York in I don't know how many years. It was freezing. And we got in. We You had a car. We got in the limo. No, we no, you're missing eat, a key detail. And, you're missing a key detail here, though. Hold on a second. If we're going to tell no, no, the story. No, no. I, I, this is on the way there. Wait, wait. No, this, is this on was the way outside. There. This was outside the hotel. I rolled back from NBA TV just as you guys were walking out, and you said, you want to go to dinner? And I said, sure, Jonesy, let's go. He's like, well, I'm, I'm actually going with Mike and his boys. And then we tried flagging a cab. And no, that was on the way back. No, it was that not. That was on the it way back. <laughs> no, was I'm on telling the you. Way back. No, on I'm my on you. my life, on my life, it wasn't because I'm going to give you the key detail. Is well, we the key went detail tra- was Mike James. <laughs> Mike James said, "I got Jason Kidd tomorrow. It's no. time to go home. Go no, back you're to missing, the hotel you're, and get Jonesy, some rest." You're, miss, you're missing a key detail here, Mike. Back me up on this. You guys went out, and I'm saying this like I I can say this. You guys can hey you can you can say it if you want, but I'll say it. The racist cab drivers in New York City that would not pick up Paul Jones or Mike James or Mike's buddies, and you guys pushed me out to the curb, and within about ten seconds yes. I got a cab, and then the cab the cab pulled away when you guys walked up to the cab. So then Mike or one of his friends looked over, and about like maybe. I don't know, 50 yards away across the street, there was a limousine. And Mike went over and tapped on the window, and the dude was waiting for somebody. He had like a, a two- or three-hour window. And Mike said, listen, I promise you we will be back at this time if you take us. And we rolled through Manhattan in a limo to dinner and then for a drink. And on the nose, to your point, Jonesy, Mike James said, 
I got Jason Kidd the next day. Boom, we're out. Like literally, like the drink was halfway down my throat. Boom, we're out, and we're back at the hotel because Mike knew that man had to get his car back, and Mike knew he had a job the next day. Is that not correct? That's accurate. I, that is accurate. I thought it was on the way back. I thought it was on the way back. I, I really did. Okay, I'm getting old, but Mike, to the point was, my point was, the way you treated people. I mean. I, 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 for 30 years I've been doing this, and other than coaches, he, I can't remember another time when players have said to us, "Why don't you come and roll with us?" I, I, I do remember, I do remember a couple looking after the bill. They see me in the restaurant, see us in the restaurant. Hey, look after that bill. But like being invited for the whole night with Mike James and his crew. In New York, as a New York kid, as a Queens kid, man, that was a good night. That was a good night. <laughs> man, I always treat people the same way. In my eyes, look, I, I tell homeless people all the time, when God, when, 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 you, when, when you go to heaven, like, God's mansion is going to have, it's you, trust me, your, your home won't be no smaller than the person that lived righteous and your money on and on earth don't determine your status on earth in heaven. And you may not have nothing here, but in God's eyes, you're very special and you're very important. And if God says you're special and important, well, then you're special and important to me. Mike, love chatting with you, man. Thanks again for this. Awesome Appreciate stuff, Mike. You. Appreciate you. I knew it. Jonesy, I knew there were going to be stories. And, and I mean, he yep. told some great ones. But that last one, that last one, I do have to quickly just say, though, before I get any too much hate mail or, or, or whatever else, not every New York City cab driver is racist. I'm not painting them all with one stroke. But that night, that freezing night in New York, there were a lot of shady dudes that wouldn't pick up Mike James and Paul Jones and his friends. And that's, that is the accurate story, man. And, and, and I'll tell you the other thing, too, and I'll let you jump in here. I don't know about you. You've been doing it a little bit longer than me. But I can count on folks, like literally one hand, the amount of times that I've done anything social with a player on the road. Nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100. Players go their way, coaches go their way, broadcasters go their way. We may interact or see each other passing you know, through a lobby or at an elevator or something, but again, 99 times out of 100, the, the, the worlds aren't colliding and it's not like you're out breaking bread. But that night in New York, aside from the cabbie stuff and whatever else, Having a chance to see Mike with his friends and just have a, 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 a part of his sort of personal life, something that you don't necessarily always get with players, as I've just noted, getting behind the, the velvet curtain and just seeing a guy as a, as, a, as a person, as a friend, not just as a player, that's a memory that has always stuck in my brain and will forever until the, the day I die or retire. Yeah, it was, it was a great one-off, Eric, and you're right. People think that oh, you're on the road, you must be hanging out with the players. As, as you said, the worlds rarely collide. The paths, you know, you might see somebody, as you said, in a lobby, in an elevator, uh, in a restaurant, going in and out, sitting in a different spot. Like, it just, it just doesn't happen all the time. But, um, you know, that, that's kind of the way Mike was. Um, you know, when he said to me, like, hey, you know, I'm going for, I'm going for dinner. I have to eat, too. So it, it, it was great. It was a terrific night. And, um, yeah, it did give us a little bit of a look behind the curtain. But the thing that sticks out to me about that is when it was all said and done, 
Mike James said, I got Jason Kidd tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. And I need to get my rest. I need to be ready to go. I, and, and, and that struck me as a guy who, you know, wanted to do well. Uh, he, he, you know, he knew what he needed to do. I need my rest. I need to be ready to play against one of the best players in the game. Folks, make sure you are subscribed to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast: Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Download, subscribe, rate, review, and share. I guarantee that Raptor fans are going to want to hear that Mike James interview if they didn't catch it. So make sure you share this podcast as well. All right, we're going to step aside for a quick break. When we come back, he didn't play for the Raptors, but he did play for Team Canada. He's still a member of the Canadian program, and he's still playing ball, let alone he's got his fingers in a lot of pots right now from a business perspective. We're going to talk to Canadian Andrew Nicholson when we continue on Smith & Jones. Welcome back to Smith and Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Thanks again to Mike James for joining us to kick off this week's edition of the program. And we are pleased to bring into the conversation right now a guy who has played for Team Canada for a number of years, uh, played in the NBA for six years, most notably with the Orlando Magic and the Washington Wizards. He's been playing in Asia now for the last four or five years as well. Free agent right now, likely signing at some point this summer, I would assume overseas again, but who knows? Let's find out more right now from Canadian forward Andrew Nicholson. Andrew, before we talk about you and, and kind of current day and what's next for you, at, you know, both on and off the court, I, I want to look back to uh, a week ago with the draft and um, you know the influx of players that come into the league, and, and you were one of those guys. I can't believe it's been over a decade ago. I mean, time, time's flying, man, if we look back to 2012 and you getting selected by Orlando in the first round. And one of the things that Jonesy and I often talk about, and, and I'd, I'd be interested in your perspective as a guy who's been there, is the fact that it doesn't seem like it's talked enough about or appreciated necessarily enough that every year you're looking at at least roughly about a 10 to 15% turnover in the league. You got two rounds, you got 60 picks, there's 15 jobs on a team. There's 30 teams in the league. That's 450 jobs. And even if even if it's only 30 dudes coming into the league, you're looking at damn near 10%. Like, there's at least 30 guys then that are in the league right now that won't be in the league next year. And it's just wild to me to think about that, how quickly things can change, both pro and con, depending on which path you're on at which moment in time. Yeah, I agree. I mean – that's just the nature of uh, uh, the NBA and basketball itself. You know, getting there is one thing, but, you know, being able to, you know, stay there and show your uh, your value and how much you can bring to the team and organization is another thing. But uh, I think a lot of the times, a lot of these guys, what they're doing now is uh, they're starting to realize that, you know, it's not just about getting there, but what do I do when I get there? So how do I separate myself in a sense where um, I can be the best at this role on this team to make this organization as good as it can be. And a lot of these guys are starting to realize that now, you know, a lot of the analytics and a lot of the high level training that all these kids are getting now that um, we didn't really have, you know, necessarily back in my day, but it's at a higher level now. So I think that's really the, the defining uh, factor. Andrew, uh, talk to me about um, the way the game progressed. You just mentioned the analytics. When you look back, were there numbers, were there things, were there parts of that, um, area department of the game that area that could have helped you um you know as you as you progress in your career or is it just a a thing where it's they've kind of always been there and you just have to try to take advantage of whichever ones you can 
Yeah, I think the numbers have always uh, been there. I think it's a little bit more enhanced now in terms of, uh, like, for instance, you know, I know they take a lot of uh, looking into, like, athletes' recovery. So, you know, load management and those kind of things where, you know, if a player is – or so we used to have, like, heart rate monitors that we would use, and it would dictate how much, you know, gas we'd have in the tank. So that would dictate how hard practice was. So if the majority of the team is, has a good heart rate reading, you know, a little bit harder. If everybody was a little gassed, you know, after a game, after a back-to-back, coach would actually take it down a notch. So um, I, I feel as though, like, having those um, enhancements, and it continues to get better right now. And as the league is continuing to regress forward, that these guys are able to recover better. You know, they're able to know, like, how their bodies are feeling, or, like, whether they're injured or not. And that's really what's making them a lot better. Andrew, maybe to that point, you just touched on it, but I want to dig a little bit further, perhaps. Uh, you know, essentially a decade plus now into your professional career when we think about the NBA and the six years overseas. What what mm-hmm. do you know now? I'm sure there's a long list. You don't have to give me every one. But what, <laughs> what do you know now that you didn't know then? Or what do you know now that you wish you had known more of back then when you were first breaking in? Uh, for me, it would definitely be a lot of diet. So when I was younger, you know, in my early 20s, I would usually eat everything. I had a huge, enormous appetite. But now that I'm, you know, closer to my mid-30s, I'm realizing that the foods that I'm eating now and how I take care of myself and how I recover greatly impacts my performance. So, for instance, in the summer times, I focus more on stuff that will make me stronger, injury preventable in the weight room than I do more so in basketball because, from my perspective, I play basketball all season. So, now is the time for me to build my battery, build my capacity as an athlete. So when I get into the season, my body is able to with, withhold the, the banging, the pounding and everything. And I'm stable enough to finish a season without being uh, injured. And luckily for me, it's in my career, I've been injury free. The most I've had is maybe a, a sprained ankle, but I was out for maybe like a week or two. But because I had that approach, I was able to um, withstand the, the, the length of the seasons throughout my career. Andrew, do you think guys are more uh, amenable to watching that now? I mean, I look at a guy like LeBron doing what he d- is doing at his age and, and how long guys are playing. That You know, there was a theory that said, well, there's only so many miles in the tank, but I guess it's how you use them, right, in terms of, as you said, load management, uh, building your capacity in the offseason. How much do you think the young kids now are aware of that stuff, whereas, you know, back in time, some of you guys, as you said, you didn't really – you didn't really pay as close. You paid attention, but not as close as as you do now. I think because of the the development and the progress of uh, trainers and everybody in the league, they're starting to realize. You know, like you said, LeBron's a prime example. He's 38. He's still playing at a high level, averaging what 28 points or something like that. It's it's incredible. And I doubt LeBron is playing. Like for me, when I was younger, all I wanted to do was just play basketball, play basketball. But then I realized as I was getting older, I was getting more sore, I was getting tired. So I took that approach and went, took it more to, towards the weight room. And, you know, LeBron, he spends an enormous amount of money taking care of his body. That's why he's able to play at this high level for a very, very long time. He's the best to ever do it, you know, playing the long, at this high level for the longest. And it's because he takes care of his body. Obviously, he's in the weight room. His diet is incredible. And I think because people are seeing that and the young people are seeing that, they're starting to – get more into the weight room, starting to understand that, you know, I need to eat well. I can't, I can't go to bed at three in the morning. I can't eat pizza every day. I have to actually have something in my, 
body to make the the body last throughout the whole season, essentially. I feel like I'm being seen right now. I went to bed at 3 a.m. last night, and I'm going out for pizza for dinner tonight. And, that, and that's not a joke. Oh, yeah. That's not a joke. So <laughs> you got you got to got to indulge every once in a while, I suppose. Um, Andrew, yeah. to, to to that point though about staying fit, staying ready. It's not just obviously for the NBA level. It's for wherever you're playing. Period. The importance of health, the importance of staying fit and staying healthy and being in top condition. Because and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but Jonesy and I have talked about this many times uh, over the years on on this show. There's the way that the game truly has become global and the talent that is available in so many pro leagues around the globe now, even if it's not at the NBA, man, there is some fantastic basketball being played and elite basketball being played, competitive ball being played in so many different countries and continents that the sky's the limit for a young player now. It just doesn't have to be the 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 be all end all is just the NBA. I I agree. I mean, like for instance, my my journey after the NBA, being able to play in Asia, was something that I am forever grateful for. I, if I were to go back in time, I would do it again because you know I was able to see a different part of the world, see a different style of style of basketball, and be able to learn more about myself as a player and as a person on and off the court. So, um, uh, yeah. So basically. Just to what you said, you know, being able to, you know, embrace that and, you know, take care of yourself and play as long as you can, wherever you can, has been, been a blessing. Guys, it's funny you say that because there are a lot of guys that, you know, like yourself, they, they, they carve out a good career, a great career in internationally, in Asia, in, in, in Europe, in South America, wherever it is, in, in you know, in, in, in Germany, wherever it is. And, I wouldn't say they turned their nose at the NBA, but rather than take one year of the NBA, they play the long game. And, you know, I think of a, a guy who's probably your vintage too, a guy like a Kevin Pangos, who has made a really good living, made a re- has a, had a really good career. Um, if you could talk to young kids, would you, I know the NBA is it, but would you? T- how much would you talk to about that possibility when you look at, you know, what you've been able to do and and the way it's still going right now? I mean, but like you said, the, the NBA is it. But being able to use the basketball to provide you a great job, to take you around the world and experience things you'll never experience without playing basketball, I would say, just just like you said earlier, play the long game because this ball can give you so many opportunities. Yeah, I know the NBA is a, is a top-level league. You know, everybody wants to be there. It's very competitive. You're playing with the best players in the world. But if you're able to have a stable, successful job in another country like Spain or China or wherever in the world you want to go, you can actually build a community and feel the same um, superstar status, get close to the same amount of money, but be able to play for a very, very long time. And, and you get to actually experience a different part of the world as a, uh, compared to what we do over here in North America. Andrew, let me ask you honestly, and I, I you know, mm-hmm. tell me, tell me to get lost if I'm out of line here. Is there, does there have to be a bit of an ego check initially? Because as much as we talk about the quality of basketball around the world, and I, I just said it myself three minutes ago, you can play anywhere, and there's opportunity, and there's a outstanding ball, but it's still quote unquote not the NBA, at least mentally, mm-hmm. until you get there, until you see how good it is, and until you realize the opportunity, you have to make the money and to be the star and to have that that clout and, and whatnot. It, did you have to kind of check the ego initially as well, or, or were you going in already knowledgeable of everything? 
Oh, absolutely. Definitely got to check the ego. So when you check the ego, that's when reality comes to set in because the ego is a killer among our athletes. It, it's a good and bad thing, but for me, like for instance, short story, when I went to China the first the first year, you know, after practice was done, I had my practice gear, I had my shoes, I walked over to the, the trainer like we normally do in the NBA. I, I gave it to them in my bag. I was like, here. He's like, what do you want me to do with this? I was like, well, don't you guys do laundry? He's like, Haha. he laughed at me. He said, no, you got to do your own laundry. You got to carry your own shoes. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, really? So I, I, had five, I had five years of them doing all that for me, you know, and then before the game, I'm like, okay, so what's pregame meal? They're like, pregame meal? We don't have pregame meal. You got to get food on your own. And I was in a city where I wasn't eating a lot of uh, the same foods that I ate here. So I'm eating, like, fried rice, fried noodles, bread, all that stuff before the game that I wasn't, that I wasn't used to. But because I got to experience that, it was very, very humbling. Because then I started to realize the little things that everybody did for us in the NBA was such an impact. And being able to, you know, do your own laundry, carry your shoes, I mean, that's something that you got to get used to. And that's you to where I was. And that's what kind of made me fall in love with Asia again as well, too, because, you know, the games are different. The fans are different. Being able to do all that stuff is what got me into that. But I would definitely say to your point, there is going to have to be some sort of ego check to realize that, you know, not everybody can be a superstar in the NBA. You know, you can be a role player, you can be a bench player, you can be whatever you can. But if you're able to carve out your own niche in another league, in another country, you can still have the same success if you do it the right way. Andrew, how much uh, how much pressure did you feel as a as a, as an import? Um, because I know the spots are limited there, also. Um, you know how 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 much pressure did you feel there, and um, was there is was there any way that you felt you were prepared for that going over there? Oh God, <laughs> so much pressure! You got two bad games; they'll send you home. <laughs> so <laughs> you know what I mean. So going into that, I knew that. I had to come correct every single game. So, I mean, obviously the talent over there is not as high in the NBA. So what I learned is that the biggest competition that you will have is against yourself. Being able to come to practice every day, give it 100%, even if the guy guarding you is not as good as you or half as good as you, you still have to bring it. You, you hold yourself accountable to, to your training. So you have to get your extra lifts in. You have to get your extra shots in. Because a lot of times guys go over there – and they're like, oh, you know, this is easy, so I'm not going to work as hard. But then when the game time starts and the popcorn starts popping and they're sending two, three guys after you and they're expecting you to score 30 points a game, you know, you got to be able to get those reps in where it's become second nature to you. So what I would do is I would come in early. I would still do the same stuff I did in the league. I'd do my extra work, practice, and after I'd do my extra work again. I'd do my extra lifting, and that's what enabled me to – continue to be successful there six years later. And I'm continuing to do that. And I'm trying to show these young guys that when they come there, that it's not just a walk in the park, like anything can happen. And for you to consistently put up numbers that they want you to do and to carry the team, because a lot of the onus is on us, right? So if we, if you lose, it's the enforced fault. If you win, it's the team's fault. You know what I mean? So <laughs> you got to be able to, you got to be able to have that on your back, knowing that I'm going into the game. I've been prepared. I'm ready. You know, when, pre when preparation meets opportunity, that's when you have success. And that's a key example of what you need to do to bring over there. So maybe maybe on that front, um, let me find a little segue here, Andrew, when we talk about pressure and expectations and, and, and whatnot. Um, again, I'm, I'm switching gears a little bit here. But the pressure 
and the expectation and the ego check and everything else that goes into this time of the year, at least from an NBA perspective, and you live through it at least five, six times, free agency, and let alone the you know trade deadline earlier in the season, but free agency in summertime and trying to figure out where I might be or who might be coming after me or where am I going to get a contract and whatnot. What do you think is going through the minds of a lot of players right now as, you know, we, you know, Jonesy and I often call it the silly season is upon us where, you know, the money that's going to be thrown around and the jobs and, and roles that are going to change before we get this thing started again come October? I mean, it's very nerve-wracking. Remember when I went through it, I literally had my phone on loud and with me everywhere I went. So I was waiting for that call for whenever it happens. Um, but, yeah, it's a very uh, – I mean, it's a tough time for the athletes. Uh, some athletes already know where they're going. Some don't. So uh, just being patient, being ready, and just letting everything take its course, you know, trusting your agent, trusting that what you did that last season will get you to where you want to go is essentially the advice that I would give during this time. Andrew, how does that impact, uh, <laughs> how does that impact the locker room? You know, trade deadline time. Uh, in February, and you're hearing, as Eric and I talk, call it the silly season, you're hearing all these rumors. I mean, we've been on a flight where guys have come on the plane on trade deadline day and asked us, hey, you hearing anything? <laughs> hey, man, we're broadcasters. We don't, we don't know. But how does it impact a locker room, Andrew? Because, you, you know, you, you've built friendships. You, you, those are guys that you, you spend good and bad times with them. You laugh with them. You cry with them. And all of a sudden the guy in the locker beside you is gone or you're gone from the guy that you used yeah. to hang out with. Like, how does that impact the locker room? I mean, at the end of the day, we're all professionals and we all know that it's a business. So we all know that no one is really guaranteed as well. Maybe it's select few, but no one is really guaranteed a spot 1000% on a team. Right. So you still make those friendships. You still make those uh, those bonds because you want to build the team chemistry. You want to know that everybody's pulling for each other. But you do have in the back of your mind that this is not going to be something that's forever. So with that being said, if you're a guy who you know is probably going to get traded, you know, you're still in charge of your brand. You're not going to go out there and sulk. You're not going to go out there and play bad or not do that because that's going to affect your image. So you're still going to go put on a show for whoever's watching, you're still going to go give it 110% because everybody knows that you are representing yourself. Andrew, before we let you go here, I wanted to, wanted to at least mention this, and maybe you can maybe share a story of, of just what it was like for you, uh, you know, in the moment and, and looking up at the rafters. But for a guy that's still playing, a guy that still hopes to be playing for a few years, I would hope, a guy that's still, you know, a member of, of Canada basketball and the path to the worlds, we could talk about that maybe still as well. Um, but getting inducted, into the Hall of Fame recently, uh, back at your alma mater at St. Bonnie's, like that. For for a guy that's still a young dude, that's got to be a hell of a thrill to see that number up there and to to do that in front of friends and family. Oh man, it it, it was honestly amazing. It was something I'm never ever going to forget. You know, I'm really thankful for uh, Bonaventure uh, taking a chance on me and giving me the opportunity to to go there and have a great four years there. You know, thankful for what I did for the, the program to bring it back, you know, everybody on that team, uh, give credit to everybody on the staff and in the school for being with us and following us consistently. But I chose that school for a reason because I knew that they did have a basketball history and that I wanted to be a part of a program where I can bring it back. I didn't want to me personally. I didn't want to just go to another school and just go through a revolving door. You know, you go in and you go out. I wanted to actually go and make a, long-lasting impact and i'm thankful that i was able to have the opportunity to do that which resulted in me being inducted in the hall of fame andrew what's next for you when you 
think about your career. Eric talked about the great honor in the Hall of Fame. Um, you're still a young guy. You got lots of you got lots of time in front of you. I know the game's important to you. You probably want to stay close to it, but where do you see yourself going? Especially, you know, I saw you a couple weeks ago at the home opener for the Scarborough Shooting Stars and the the uh, Hamilton, the Brampton Honey Badgers, and and that's kind of your neck of the woods. Is is that in your future? What's what's next for you? Well, for me. Um... I'm also, well, I'm not just a basketball player. I'm actually an entrepreneur as well, too. So I have several businesses up here in uh, in Toronto. I'm actually bringing uh, Crumble Cookies. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. My old teammate, oh, yeah. Tobias, yeah, Tobias yeah. Harris and I yeah, will Tobias be bringing. Harris, yeah. Yeah. So him and I, we're going to be bringing three locations up here in Ontario. We have our grand opening uh, July 28th at Heartland Town Center, Mississauga. So I'm, that's one of the ventures I'm really excited about. Um, I'm really in tune with uh, giving back to the community through my nonprofit. So we've been having 44 hoops run for the last, I think 2014 is when it started. So going on 10 years now, we've been, we've been going. So we preached uh, the student athlete experience to the, uh, to the youth in the city um, to try to get them to see the path that I went, you know, a kid from Mississauga. I didn't go high level D1. I went to regular high school, went to regular college, but I still made it to the pros and still got my uh, physics degree. So being able to, you know, resonate with them, saying that, you know, I was you guys. I wasn't really high level, but I still made it. I want to show them the opportunity to get there, but also I want them to get there using the sport. I don't want the sport to use them. So being able to use this basketball to get you an education, get you around the world, get you a great job and take care of your family is what we try to emulate with that. And then my other adventures, you know, I have a couple of restaurants. I have a couple, little bit of real estate here and there. But that's really what I'm going to be uh, keeping myself busy doing once I'm, once I'm done playing. So, nonetheless, my summers are very busy. <laughs> this off season is not really an off season. So, I got to train and I got to, you know, help manage all this stuff as well, too. But it's something that, um, a challenge that I wanted to do. I'm glad I did it. And I'm just glad to be able to have the opportunity to do that just because of this amazing beautiful orange basketball or whatever uh, color and, it well, is andrew <laughs> let me tell you something hey mm -hmm. let me tell you something eric and i will be in for the crumble cookies we will be there we will probably keep your business afloat for a while oh perfect <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be great that's going to be july 28th heartland town center mississauga the grand all opening right, Listen, it's, it's probably a good place to wrap up there on, on that message, but I'm not going to because I do have to ask you just like that, that one click la quick last one I, I alluded to and mm -hmm. mentioned, still the involvement with Canada basketball. With the Worlds coming up in the fall, um, uh, you know, just your, your perspective, Andrew, of a guy that's been along the way helping this team through so many different steps and where this program's at now. And, I, I mean, I don't know if, if, if your time is done in the red and white or if you still hope to be involved at some point in some capacity or just kind of your assessment of where things are at, maybe both on and off the floor for this program. Uh, I see the program's going in the right direction. And that's where we wanted to get it going from when I started back in, I think, 2012 was when I started. And uh, I'm glad to see you now we have so much talent that's coming in. It's a lot of people committed to coming to make the – the, the red and white go in the right direction. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate loss that we had uh, a couple of years ago back in Victoria, but I know we still all have that chip on our shoulder to, to, to get where we need to be. But the red and white knows that, you know, my phone's always available whenever they need me. You know, if they need a, a guy to score on the block, shoot a couple of threes, I'm available. <laughs> Andrew, thanks for this, man. We really appreciate it and all the best. No problem. Appreciate you guys. Thank you.
Thanks again to Andrew Nicholson for joining us on Smith and Jones. And man, I'll tell you what, I'm going to get myself in trouble if I do too many of the crumble cookies and don't support my wife and her her side business. But hey, man, the more cookies, the better. You know, right, Jonesy? Just like I said, I'm, and here I am talking about I'm going for pizza tonight. I'm eating cookies. I got to make sure I stay on that workout regimen. Um, I'm looking for a segue here, and I don't have one. So let me just quickly say, Team Canada, jumping back to what we kind of finished our conversation with Andrew Nicholson about, uh, there's been a little bit of news the last little bit here with Team Canada, and news that most people weren't expecting. It was two months ago that uh, those in charge at Canada Basketball were saying that in spite of how things went down with the Toronto Raptors and Nick Nurse, Nick Nurse was still going to be back as head coach for the Canadian national team, of course, getting set for the Worlds. And then we find out, oh, it's not the case. Nick Nurse is now out uh, as head coach, and Jordy Fernandez, assistant coach with the Sacramento Kings, is taking over as the new bench boss for Team Canada. Jonesy came as a bit of a surprise. There's a lot of rumblings and speculation out there. I know our colleague Michael Grange at Sportsnet.ca has reported a few things. Doug Smith at the Toronto Star has said a few things about, you know, was this Team Canada? No, it sounds like it was more the Sixers, or maybe it was Nick Nurse himself. But either way, um, Nurse with a new team, with new responsibilities, needing to new, learn new players and forge new relationships and, and et cetera, et cetera. It sounds like it just kind of wasn't in the cards and Team Canada was forced to quickly pivot, I guess. Yeah, it's a time thing, Eric. I mean, you, you talked about that. New players, uh, for in the case of Nick Nurse, a new boss. Uh, and and would the boss be okay with that? And that's something that, you know, you can you can talk about and debate. But, I mean, listen, I'll say this, and, and you know Nick the same way. His heart is in basketball. So, uh, you know, as you said, he's new players to learn, uh, a new boss to answer to. Um, those relationships and those kinds of issues were all settled before when he was a Raptor. The boss was okay with it. As a matter of fact, the Toronto Raptors are a very valuable partner and contributor to Canada basketball. And Nick was, he'd been in Toronto for 10 years. He knew the players. He knew the system. It was his system, and the guys knew it as well. And so now trying to kind of reestablish that, uh, you know, he's got to take a step back, and it takes a little bit more time. So, you know, with limited time, I guess, and a new boss, he probably figured, I better step back. And uh, after some discussion, Team Canada, we've got, uh, we've got a new coach. And it was interesting to, 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 think, to look at it and say, you know, Jordy Fernandez, here's a guy that was, uh, you know, rumored in Toronto, had a couple of interviews, and maybe it was Jordy's destiny to end up in, in Canada one way or the other. Well, and, and there's no denying the international resume that he brings to the table as well, which you would hope or assume should uh, bode well for the Canadians uh, when, when ultimately they do begin their quest uh, for the Worlds. Um, folks, that's a jammed edition, man. This is this was fun. This was fun. Loved chatting with Andrew Nicholson and loved hearing the stories from Mike James and catching up with the former Raptor point guard as well. So, again, I'm going to tell you, share this podcast, especially with Raptor fans, but especially with Canadian basketball fans as well. Share, subscribe, review, rate it, and download it. I kind of went in reverse there from my usual list. It's kind of confusing my brain a little bit. But either way, it's Smith and Jones. <laughs>